Chapter Fifteen, Part One of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. South: The Story of Shackleton's Last Expedition, 1914 to 1917, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Fifteen, Laying the Depots, Part One. Mackintosh's account of the depot-laying journeys undertaken by his parties in the summer of 1915 to 1916, unfortunately, is not available. The leader of the parties kept a diary, but he had the book with him when he was lost on the sea ice in the following winter. The narrative of the journeys has been compiled from the notes kept by Joyce, Richards, and other members of the parties, and I may say here that it is a record of dogged endeavor in the face of great difficulties and serious dangers. It is always easy to be wise after the event, and one may realize now that the use of the dogs, untrained and soft from shipboard inactivity, on the comparatively short journey undertaken immediately after the landing in 1915, was a mistake. The result was the loss of nearly all the dogs before the longer and more important journeys of 1915 to 1916 were undertaken. The men were sledging almost continuously during a period of six months. They suffered from frostbite. Scurvy, snow blindness, and the utter weariness of overtaxed bodies, but they placed the depots in the required positions. And if the Weddell Sea Party had been able to make the crossing of the Antarctic continent, the stores and fuel would have been waiting for us where we expected to find them. The position on October nine was that the nine men at Hut Point had with them the stores required for the depots and for their own maintenance throughout the summer. The remaining dogs were at Cape Evans with Gaze, who had a sore heel and had been replaced temporarily by Stevens in the sledging party. A small quantity of stores had been conveyed already to safety camp on the edge of the barrier beyond Hut Point. Mackintosh intended to form a large depot at Mina Bluff, seventy miles out from Hut Point. This would necessitate several trips with heavy loads. Then he would use the Bluff depot as a base for the journey to Mount Hope. At the foot of the Beardmore Glacier, where the final depot was to be laid, the party left Hut Point on the morning of October nine. The nine men hauling on one rope and trailing three loaded sledges, they reached safety camp in the early afternoon, and after repacking the sledges with a load of about two thousand pounds, they began the journey over the barrier. The pulling proved exceedingly heavy, and they camped at the end of half a mile. It was decided next day to separate the sledges, three men to haul each sledge. Mackintosh hoped that better progress could be made in this way. The distance for the day was only four miles, and the next day's journey was no better. Joyce mentions that he had never done harder pulling, the surface being soft and the load amounting to two hundred and twenty pounds per man. The new arrangement was not a success, owing to differences in hauling capacity and inequalities in the loading of the sledges. And on the morning of the twelfth, Mackintosh, after consultation, decided to push forward with Wild and Spencer Smith, hauling one sledge and a relatively light load, and leave Joyce and the remaining five men to bring two sledges and the rest of the stores at their best pace. This arrangement was maintained on the later journeys. The temperatures were falling below negative thirty degrees Fahrenheit at some hours, and as the men perspired freely while hauling their heavy loads in the sun. They suffered a great deal of discomfort in the damp and freezing clothes at night. 
Joyce cut down his load on the 13th by depoting some rations and spare clothing, and made better progress. He was building snow-carns as guideposts for use on the return journey. He mentions passing some large crevasses during succeeding days. Persistent headwinds with occasional drift made the conditions unpleasant and caused many frostbites. When the surface was hard and the pulling comparatively easy, the men slipped and fell continually, looking much like classical dancers. On the 20th a northerly wind made possible the use of a sail, and Joyce's party made rapid progress. Jack sighted a bamboo pole during the afternoon, and Joyce found that marked a depot he had laid for my own farthest south party in 1908. He dug down in the hope of finding some stores, but the depot had been cleared. The party reached the bluff depot on the evening of the 21st, and found that Mackintosh had been there on the 19th. Mackintosh had left 178 pounds of provisions, and Joyce left one sledge and 273 pounds of stores. The most interesting incident of the return journey was the discovery of a note left by Mr. Cherry Garand for Captain Scott on March 19, 1912, only a few days before the latter perished at his camp further south. An upturned sledge at this point was found to mark a depot of dog biscuits and motor oil, laid by one of Captain Scott's parties. Joyce reached safety camp on the afternoon of the 27th, and after dumping all spare gear, pushed on to Hut Point in a blizzard. The sledges nearly went over a big drop at the edge of the barrier, and a few moments later Stevens dropped down a crevasse to the length of his harness. "'Had a tough job getting him up, as we had no alpine rope and had to use harness,' wrote Joyce. "'Got over all right, and had a very hard pull against the wind and snow, my face getting frostbitten as I had to keep looking up to steer.' We arrived at the hut about 7.30 p.m. after a very hard struggle. We found the captain and his party there. They had been in for three days. Gaze was also there with the dogs. We soon had a good feed and forgot our hard day's work. Mackintosh decided to make use of the dogs on the second journey to the bluff depot. He thought that with the aid of the dogs heavier loads might be hauled. This plan involved the dispatch of a party to Cape Evans to get dog pemmican. Mackintosh himself, with Wilde and Spencer Smith, started south again on October 29. Their sledge overturned on the slope down to the sea ice, and the rim of their tent spread was broken. The damage did not appear serious, and the party soon disappeared round Cape Armitage. Joyce remained in charge at Hut Point, with instructions to get dog food from Cape Evans, and make a start south as soon as possible. He sent Stevens, Hayward and Cope to Cape Evans the next day, and busied himself with the repair of sledging gear. Cope, Hayward, and Gaze arrived back from Cape Evans on November 1, Stevens having stayed at the base. A blizzard delayed the start southward, and the party did not get away until November 5. The men pulled in harness with the four dogs, and, as the surface was soft and the loads on the two sledges were heavy, the advance was slow. The party covered five miles, seven hundred yards, on the sixth, four miles, three hundred yards, on the seventh, eight miles, eighteen hundred yards, on the ninth, with the aid of a light northerly wind. They passed on the ninth a huge bergstrom, with a drop of about seventy feet from the flat surface of the barrier. Joyce thought that a big crevasse had caved in. We took some photographs, wrote Joyce. 
It is a really extraordinary fill-in of ice, with cliffs of blue ice about seventy feet high, and heavily crevassed, with overhanging snow curtains. One could easily walk over the edge coming from the north in thick weather. Another Bergstrom, with crevassed ice around it, was encountered on the 11th. Joyce reached the bluff depot on the evening of the 14th, and found that he could leave 624 pounds of provisions. Mackintosh had been there several days earlier, and had left 188 pounds of stores. Joyce made Hut Point again on November 20, after an adventurous day. The surface was good in the morning, and he pushed forward rapidly. About 10.30 a.m. the party encountered heavy pressure ice with crevasses, and had many narrow escapes. After lunch we came on four crevasses quite suddenly. Jack fell through. We could not alter course, or else we should have been steering among them, so galloped right across. We were going so fast that the dogs that went through were jerked out. It came on very thick at 2 p.m. Every bit of land was obscured, and it was hard to steer. Decided to make for Hut Point, and arrived at 6.30 p.m. after doing 22 miles, a very good performance. I had a bad attack of snow blindness, and had to use cocaine. Hayward also had a bad time. I was laid up and had to keep my eyes bandaged for three days. Hayward, too. The two men were about again on November 24, and the party started on its third journey to the bluff on the 25th. Mackintosh was some distance ahead, but the two parties met on the 28th and had some discussions as to plans. Mackintosh was proceeding to the bluff depot with the intention of taking a load of stores to the depot placed on latitude 80 degrees south in the first season's sledging. Joyce, after depositing his third load at the bluff, would return to Hut Point for a fourth and last load, and the parties would then join forces for the journey southward to Mount Hope. Joyce left 729 pounds at the Bluff Depot on December 2, reached Hut Point on December 7, and after allowing dogs and men a good rest, he moved southward again on December 13. This proved to be the worst journey the party had made. The men had much trouble with crevasses, and they were held up by blizzards on December 16, 18, 19, 22, 23, 26, and 27. They spent Christmas Day struggling through soft snow against an icy wind and drift. The party reached the Bluff Depot on December 28, and found that Mackintosh, who had been much delayed by the bad weather, had gone south two days earlier on his way to the 80 degrees south depot. He had not made much progress, and his camp was in sight. He had left instructions for Joyce to follow him. The Bluff Depot was now well stocked. Between 2,800 and 2,900 pounds of provisions had been dragged to the depot for the use of parties working to the south of this point. This quantity was in addition to stores placed there earlier in the year. Joyce left the Bluff Depot on December 29, and the parties were together two days later. Mackintosh handed Joyce instructions to proceed with his party to latitude 81 degrees south and place a depot there. He was then to send three men back to Hut Point, and proceed to latitude 82 degrees south, where he would lay another depot. Then, if provisions permitted, he would push south as far as latitude 83 degrees. Mackintosh himself was reinforcing the depot at latitude 80 degrees south, and would then carry on southward. Apparently, his instructions to Joyce were intended to guard against the contingency of the parties failing to meet. 
the dogs were hauling well, and though their number was small, they were of very great assistance. The parties were now ninety days out from Cape Evans, and all hands were feeling fit. The next incident of importance was the appearance of a defect in one of the two Primus lamps used by Joyce's party. The lamps had all seen service with one or another of Captain Scott's parties, and they had not been in first-class condition when the sledging commenced. The threatened failure of a lamp was a matter of grave moment, since a party could not travel without the means of melting snow and preparing hot food. If Joyce took a faulty lamp past the eighty-degree south depot, his whole party might have to turn back at latitude eighty-one degrees south, and this would imperil the success of the season's sledging. He decided, therefore, to send three men back from the eighty-degree south depot, which he reached on January 6, 1916. Cope, Gaze, and Jack were the men to return. They took the defective Primus and a light load, and by dint of hard traveling, without the aid of dogs, they reached Cape Evans on January 16. Joyce, Richards, and Hayward went forward with a load of 1,280 pounds, comprising twelve weeks' sledging rations, dog food, and depot supplies, in addition to the sledging gear. They built carns at short intervals as guides to the depots. Joyce was feeding the dogs well and giving them a hot hoosh every third night. It is worth it for the wonderful amount of work they are doing. If we can keep them to 82 degrees south, I can honestly say it is through their work we have got through. On January 8, Mackintosh joined Joyce, and from that point the parties, six men strong, went forward together. They marched in thick weather during January 10, 11, and 12, keeping the course by means of carns, with a scrap of black cloth on top of each one. It was possible, by keeping the carns in line behind the sledges, and building new ones as old ones disappeared, to march on an approximately straight line. On the evening of the 12th they reached latitude 81 degrees south, and built a large carn for the depot. The stores left here were three weeks' rations for the ordinary sledging unit of three men. This quantity would provide five days' rations for twelve men, half for the use of the overland party, and half for the depot party on its return journey. The party moved southwards again on January 13 in bad weather. After a little consultation we decided to get under way, wrote Joyce. Although the weather is thick and snow is falling, it is worth while to make the effort. A little patience with the direction and the carns, even if one has to put them up two hundred yards apart, enables us to advance, and it seems that this weather will never break. We have cut up an old pair of trousers belonging to Richards to place on the sides of the carns, so as to make them more prominent. It was really surprising to find how we got on in spite of the snow and the pie-crust surface. We did five miles seventy-five yards before lunch. The dogs are doing splendidly. I really don't know how we should manage if it were not for them. The distance for the day was ten miles seven hundred twenty yards, a splendid performance considering surface and weather. The weather cleared on the fourteenth, and the men were able to get bearings from the mountains to the westward. They advanced fairly rapidly during succeeding days, the daily distances being from ten to twelve miles, and reached latitude eighty-two degrees south on the morning of January eighteenth. The depot here, like the depot at 81 degrees south, contained five days' provisions for twelve men. Mackintosh was having trouble with the Primus lamp in his tent, and this made it inadvisable to divide the party again. 
It was decided, therefore, that all should proceed, and that the next and last depot should be placed on the base of Mount Hope, at the foot of the Beardmore Glacier, in latitude 83 degrees 30 minutes south. The party proceeded at once, and advanced five miles beyond the depot before camping on the evening of the 18th. The sledge loads were now comparatively light, and on the 19th the party covered 13 miles 700 yards. A new trouble was developing, for Spencer Smith was suffering from swollen and painful legs, and was unable to do much pulling. Joyce wrote on the 21st that Smith was worse, and that Mackintosh was sowing signs of exhaustion. A mountain that he had believed to be Mount Hope could be seen right ahead, over thirty miles away. Spencer Smith, who had struggled forward gamely and made no unnecessary complaints, started with the party the next morning, and kept going until shortly before noon. Then he reported his inability to proceed, and Mackintosh called a halt. Spencer Smith suggested that he should be left with provisions and a tent while the other members of the party pushed on to Mount Hope, and pluckily assured Mackintosh that the rest would put him right, and he would be ready to march when they returned. The party agreed, after a brief consultation, to adopt this plan. Mackintosh felt that the depot must be laid, and that delay would be dangerous. Spencer Smith was left with a tent, one sledge, and provisions, and told to expect the returning party in about a week. The tent was made as comfortable as possible inside, and food was placed within the sick man's reach. Spencer Smith bade his companions a cheery good-bye after lunch, and the party was six or seven miles away before evening. Five men had to squeeze into one tent that night, but with a minus temperature they did not object to being crowded. On January 23 a thick fog obscured all landmarks, and, as bearings of the mountains were now necessary, the party had to camp at 11 a.m., after traveling only four miles. The thick weather continued over the 24th, and the men did not move again until the morning of the 25th. They did seventeen and three-quarters miles that day, and camped at six p.m. on the edge of the biggest ice-pressure Joyce had ever seen. They were steering in towards the mountains, and were encountering the tremendous congestion created by the flow of the Beardmore Glacier into the barrier ice. "'We decided to keep the camp up,' ran Joyce's account of the work done on January 26. Skipper, Richards, and myself roped ourselves together, I taking the lead, and try to find a course through this pressure. We came across very wide crevasses, went down several, came on top of a very high ridge, and such a scene! Imagine thousands of tons of ice churned up to a depth of about three hundred feet. We took a couple of photographs, then carried on to the east. At last we found a passage through, and carried on through smaller crevasses to Mount Hope, or we hoped it was the mountain by that name. We can see a great glacier ahead, which we will take for the Beardmore, which this mountain is on, but the position on the chart seems wrong. It was not E.H.S. We nearly arrived at the ice foot when Richard saw something to the right, which turned out to be two of Captain Scott's sledges, upright, but three-quarters buried in snow. Then we knew for certain this was the place we had struggled to get to. Soon we climbed the glacier on the slope, and went up about one and a quarter miles, and saw the great Beardmore Glacier stretching to the south. It is about twenty-five miles wide, a most wonderful sight. Then we returned to our camp, which we found to be six miles away. We left at eight a.m., and arrived back at three p.m., a good morning's work. We then had lunch. 
About four p.m. we got under way and proceeded with the two sledges and camped about seven o'clock. Wild, Hayward, and myself then took the depot up the glacier, a fortnight's provisions. We left it lashed to a broken sledge and put up a large flag. I took two photographs of it. We did not arrive back until ten thirty p.m. It was rather a heavy pull up. I was very pleased to see our work completed at last. Turned in at twelve o'clock. The distance done during the day, twenty-two miles. The party remained in camp until three thirty p.m. on the twenty-seventh, owing to a blizzard with heavy snow. Then they made a start in clearer weather and got through the crevassed area before camping at seven p.m. Joyce was suffering from snow blindness. They were now homeward bound with three hundred sixty-five miles to go. They covered sixteen and a half miles on the twenty-eighth, with Joyce absolutely blind and hanging to the harness for guidance, but still pulling his whack. They reached Spencer Smith's camp the next afternoon and found him in his sleeping bag, quite unable to walk. Joyce's diary of this date contains a rather gloomy reference to the outlook, since he guessed that Mackintosh would also be unable to make the homeward journey. The dogs are still keeping fit, he added. If they will only last to eighty degrees south, we shall have enough food to take them in, and then if the ship is in, I guarantee they will live in comfort the remainder of their lives. No march could be made on the thirtieth, since a blizzard was raging. The party made eight miles on the thirty-first, with Spencer Smith on one of the sledges in his sleeping bag. The sufferer was quite helpless and had to be lifted and carried about, but his courage did not fail him. His words were cheerful even when his physical suffering and weakness were most pronounced. The distance for February one was thirteen miles. The next morning the party abandoned one sledge in order to lighten the load, and proceeded with a single sledge. Spencer Smith lying on top of the stores and gear. The distance for the day was fifteen and a half miles. They picked up the eighty-two degrees south depot on February third, and took one week's provisions. Leaving two weeks' rations for the overland party, Joyce, Wild, Richards, and Hayward were feeling fit. Mackintosh was weak and lame. Spencer Smith's condition was alarming. The party was being helped by a strong southerly winds, and the distances covered were decidedly good. The sledge meter recorded fifteen miles seventeen hundred yards on February four, seventeen miles fourteen hundred yards on the fifth, eighteen miles twelve hundred yards on the sixth. And thirteen miles one thousand yards on the seventh, when the eighty-one degrees south depot was picked up at ten thirty a.m., and one week's stores taken, two weeks' rations being left. The march to the next depot at eighty degrees south was uneventful. The party made good marches in spite of bad surfaces and thick weather, and reached the depot late in the afternoon of February twelfth. The supply of stores at this depot was ample, and the men took a fortnight's rations. Calculated on a three-man basis, leaving nearly four weeks' rations. Spencer Smith seemed a little better, and all hands were cheered by the rapid advance. February fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen were bad days. The soft surface allowing the men to sink to their knees at times. The dogs had a rough time, and the daily distances fell to about eight miles. Mackintosh's weakness was increasing. Then, on the eighteenth, when the party was within twelve miles of the bluff depot. A furious blizzard made traveling impossible. This blizzard raged for five days. Rations were reduced on the second day, and the party went on half rations the third day. 
Still blizzarding, wrote Joyce on the 20th. Things are serious, what with our patient and provisions running short. Dog provisions are nearly out, and we have to have their rations. We are now on one cup of hoosh among the three of us, with one biscuit and six lumps of sugar. The most serious of calamities is that our oil is running out. We have plenty of tea, but no fuel to cook it with. The men in Mackintosh's tent were in no better plight. Mackintosh himself was in a bad way. He was uncertain about his ability to resume the march, but was determined to try. Still blizzarding, wrote Joyce on the 21st, we are lying in pools of water made by our bodies, through staying in the same place for such a long time. I don't know what we shall do if this does not ease. It has been blowing continuously without a lull. The food for today was one cup of pemmican amongst the three of us, one biscuit each, and two cups of tea among the three. The kerosene was exhausted, but Richards improvised a lamp by pouring some spirit, intended for priming the oil lamp, into a mug, lighting it, and holding another mug over it. It took half an hour to heat a mug of melted snow in this way. Same old thing, no ceasing of this blizzard, was Joyce's note twenty-four hours later. Hardly any food left except tea and sugar. Richards, Hayward, and I, after a long talk, decided to get under way tomorrow in any case, or else we shall be sharing the fate of Captain Scott and his party. The other tent seems to be very quiet, but now and again we hear a burst of song from Wild, so they are in the land of the living. We gave the dogs the last of their food to-night, so we shall have to push, as a great deal depends on them. Further quotations from Joyce's diary tell their own story. February 23rd, Wednesday. About eleven o'clock saw a break in the clouds and the sun showing. Decided to have the meal we kept for getting under way. Sang out to the skipper's party that we should shift as soon as we had a meal. I asked Wild and found that they had a bag of oatmeal, some bovril cubes, one bag of chocolate, and eighteen biscuits, so they are much better off than we are. After we had our meal we started to dig out our sledge, which we found right under. It took us two hours, and one would hardly credit how weak we are. Two digs of the shovel and we were out of breath. This was caused through our lying up on practically no food. After getting the sledge out, we took it around to the skipper's tent on account of the heavy sesruski, which was very high. Got under way about 2.20. Had to stop very often on account of sail, etc. About 3.20 the skipper, who had tied himself to the rear of the sledge, found it impossible to proceed. So, after a consultation with Wilde and party, decided to pitch their tent, leaving Wilde to look after the skipper and Spencer Smith, and make the best of our way to the depot, which is anything up to twelve miles away. So we made them comfortable and left them about three-forty. I told Wilde I should leave as much as possible and get back twenty-sixth or twenty-seventh, weather permitting. But just as we left them it came on to snow pretty hard sun going in, and we found even with the four dogs we could not make more than one-half to three-quarters of a mile an hour. The surface is so bad that sometimes you go in up to your waist. Still, in spite of all this, we carried on till 6.35. Camped in a howling blizzard. I found my left foot badly frostbitten. Now, after this march, we came into our banquet, one cup of tea and half a biscuit. Turned in at nine o'clock. Situation does not look very cheerful. This is really the worst surface I have ever come across in all my journeys here. Mackintosh had stayed on his feet as long as was humanly possible. The records of the outward journey show clearly that he was really unfit to continue beyond the 82 degrees south depot, 
and other members of the party would have liked him to have stayed with Spencer Smith at latitude 83 degrees south. But the responsibility for the work to be done was primarily his, and he would not give in. He had been suffering for several weeks from what he cheerfully called a sprained leg, owing to scurvy. He marched for half an hour on the 23rd before breaking down, but had to be supported partly by Richards. Spencer Smith was sinking. Wild, who stayed in charge of the two invalids, was in fairly good condition. Joyce, Richards, and Hayward, who had undertaken the relief journey, were all showing symptoms of scurvy, though in varying degrees. Their legs were weak, their gums swollen. The decision that the invalids, with Wild, should stay in camp from February 24, while Joyce's party pushed forward to Bluff Depot, was justified fully by the circumstances. Joyce, Richards, and Hayward had difficulty in reaching the depot with a nearly empty sledge. An attempt to make their journey with two helpless men might have involved the loss of the whole party. February 24, Thursday. Up at 4.30, had one cup of tea, half a biscuit, underway after seven. Weather, snowing and blowing like yesterday. Richards, laying the cairns, had great trouble in getting the compass within ten degrees on account of wind. During the forenoon had to stop every quarter of an hour on account of our breath. Every time the sledge struck a drift she stuck in, although only two hundred pounds, and in spite of three men and four dogs we could only shift her with one, two, three, haul. I wonder if this weather will ever clear up. Camped in an exhausted condition about twelve-ten. Lunch, half a cup of weak tea and a quarter biscuit, which took over half an hour to make. Richards and Hayward went out of tent to prepare for getting under way, but the force of wind and snow drove them back. The force of wind is about seventy to eighty miles per hour. We decided to get the sleeping bags in, which took some considerable time. The worst of camping is the poor dogs in our weak condition, which means we have to get out of our wet sleeping bags and have another half cup of tea, without working for it. With scrapings from dog tank it is a very scanty meal. This is the second day the dogs have been without food, and if we cannot soon pick up depot and save the dogs it will be almost impossible to drag our two invalids back the one hundred miles which we have to go. The wind carried on with unabating fury until seven o'clock, and then came a lull. We at once turned out, but found it snowing so thickly that it was impossible to proceed on account of our weakness. No chance must we miss. Turned in again. Wind sprang up again with heavy drift 8.30. In spite of everything, my tent-mates are very cheerful, and look on the bright side of everything. After a talk we decided to wait and turn in. It is really wonderful what dreams we have, especially of food. Trusting in Providence for fine weather tomorrow. February 25, Friday. Turned out 4.45. Richards prepared our usual banquet, half cup of tea, quarter biscuit, which we relished. Underway at seven, carried on, halting every ten minutes or quarter of an hour. Weather, snowing and blowing, same as yesterday. We are in a very weak state, but we cannot give in. We often talk about poor Captain Scott and the blizzard that finished him and party. If we had stayed in our tent another day, I don't think we should have got underway at all, and we would have shared the same fate. But if the worst comes, we have made up our minds to carry on and die in harness. If any one were to see us on trek, they would be surprised. Three men staggering on with four dogs, very weak, practically empty sledge with fair wind, and just crawling along. 
Our clothes are all worn out, finisco and sleeping-bags torn. Tent is our worst point, all torn in front, and we are afraid to camp on account of it, as it is too cold to mend it. We camped for our grand lunch at noon. After five hours struggling, I think we did about three miles. After lunch, sat in our tent talking over the situation. Decided to get under way again as soon as there is any clearance. Snowing and blowing, force about fifty or sixty miles an hour. February 26, Saturday. Richards went out at 1.10 a.m. and found it clearing a bit, so we got under way as soon as possible, which was 2.10 a.m. About 2.35 Richards sighted depot, which seemed to be right on top of us. I suppose we camped no more than three-quarters of a mile from it. The dogs sighted it, which seemed to electrify them. They had new life and started to run, but we were so weak that we could not go more than two hundred yards and then spell. I think another day would have seen us off. Arrived at depot, 325, found it in a dilapidated condition, cases all about the place. I don't suppose there has ever been a weaker party arrived at any depot, either north or south. After a hard struggle got our tent up and made camp. Then gave the dogs a good feed of pemmican. If ever dogs saved the life of any one, they have saved ours. Let us hope they will continue in good health, so that we can get out to our comrades. I started on our cooking. Not one of us had any appetite, although we were in the land of plenty, as we call this depot, plenty of biscuit, etc., but we could not eat. I think it is the reaction, not only in arriving here, but also finding no news of the ship, which was arranged before we left. We all think there has been a calamity there. Let us hope for the best. We decided to have rolled oats and milk for a start, which went down very well, and then a cup of tea. How cheery the primus sounds! It seems like coming out of a thick London fog into a drawing-room. After a consultation we decided to have a meal of pemmican in four hours, and so on until our weakness was gone. Later. Still the same weather. We shall get under way and make a forced march back as soon as possible. I think we shall get stronger traveling and feeding well. Later. Weather will not permit us to travel yet. Mended our torn tent with food bags. This took four hours. Feeding the dogs every four hours, and Richards and Hayward built up depot. It is really surprising to find it takes two men to lift a fifty-pound case. It only shows our weakness. Weather still the same, force of wind at times about seventy to ninety miles an hour. Really surprising how this can keep on so long. End of chapter 15, part 1